Section four of the Diary of a U-Boat Commander. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Diary of a U-Boat Commander, by Stephen King Hall, Section Four. We laid our minds without trouble at 5 a.m. this morning, though at midnight we had a most unpleasant experience. I was asleep, as it was my morning watch, when I was wakened by the harsh rattle of the diving alarms. The diesel subsided with a few spasmodic coughs into silence, and as I jumped out of my bunk and groped for my short sea-boots, the navigator and helmsman came tumbling down the conning-tower, with the navigator shouting, "'Take her down!' as hard as you like. The men at the plains had them hard to dive in an instant. The vents had been opened as the hooters sounded, and Alton, who had jumped into the control room, immediately rang down, all out on the electric motors. In thirty seconds from the original alarm we were at an angle of twenty degrees down by the bow, and I had sat down heavily on the battery boards, completely surprised by the sudden tilt of the deck. It occurred to me that the air was escaping through the vents with a strangely loud noise, but before I could consider the matter further, or even inquire the reason for this sudden dive, the noise increased to a terrifying extent, and whilst I prepared myself for the worst, it culminated into a roar as of fifty express trains going through a tunnel, mingled with the noise of a high-powered aeroplane engine. The roar drummed and beat and shook the boat then died away as suddenly as it came. A moment later there was a severe jar. We had struck the bottom, still maintaining our angle. I painfully got to my feet, and then discovered from the navigator that we had suddenly seen two white patches of foam eight hundred yards on the starboard bow, which resolved themselves into the bow waves of a destroyer approaching at full speed to ram. We had dived just in time and her knife-edged bow, driven by thirty thousand horsepower, had slid through the water a very few feet above our conning-tower. Luckily he had not dropped any depth charges. We were not, however, completely free of our troubles, though we had cheated the destroyer. Examination of the chart showed the bottom to be mud, and on attempting to move the foremost hydroplanes, the plane-motor fuses blew out. This showed that the boat was buried in the mud right up to her foremost planes, which were immovable. The hydrophone watchkeeper reported that he could still hear fast-running propellers, though probably some distance away. And as this showed that our old enemy was still nosing about, we were very anxious not to break surface. We just blew A. Footnote. Probably their foremost internal tank. End of footnote. At least we started to blow A, but Alton wisely decided that, as it was a calm night with a half-moon, the bubbles on the surface might be rather conspicuous, so we stopped the blow and put the pump on. We also flooded W, footnote 2, presumably their after-internal tank, and a footnote. This had no effect on her at all. We then pumped out Q and P, leaving W full and adjusted our trim to give her only three tons negative buoyancy, just enough to keep us on the bottom if she came out of the mud. In this position we went full speed astern on the motors, 
fifteen hundred amps on each, and all the crew in the after compartment. No result. We then pumped the outer diving tanks on the port side to give her a list to starboard. Still she remained fixed. So at two a.m. we decided to risk it, and we put a slow blow on all tanks. When she had about fifty tons positive buoyancy, she suddenly bucketed up, and as the motors were running full speed astern at the time, we came up and broke surface stern first. In a few seconds we were trimmed down again, and as a precautionary measure we proceeded for a couple of miles at twenty meters, when, coming up to periscope depth, we surfaced, and finding all clear we proceeded. We were put down by a trawler at dawn, though she never saw us. After half an hour's hanging about she moved off, which was lucky, as she was right on our billet. We are now proceeding to a spot somewhat to the eastward of Cape St. Abbs. Footnote 3. St. Abbs Head. End of footnote. As we have instructions to do a two days patrol here and sink shipping. We ought to start business tomorrow morning. New Entry. We should be in tonight, then for my little Zoe. But I must record what we have done. Already I am getting much pleasure from reading my diary. Strange how it amuses one to see little bits of oneself on paper, and the less garnished and franker the truths, the more entertaining it is. The hours here are so long and boring at times that I feel I want to talk intimately with someone. Failing Zoe, I turn to my notebooks. The first steamer we sighted raised high hopes. At least her smoke did for we saw enough smoke on the horizon to make us think we were to see the grand fleet, and we promptly dived. We cruised towards her for about half an hour, and then hung about where we were, as we found that her course would take the ship close to us. As the situation developed, Alton, who was up in the conning tower at the A periscope, gave us a certain amount of information, and we gathered that all this smoke was pouring out of the pipe-stem funnel of a wretched little English tramp. I found it most irritating, standing in the control room, my action station, and not knowing what was going on. There is only one good job in a submarine, and that is the captain's. He knows and decides everything. The rest of us are in his hands, and take things on trust. I object on principle to my life being held in Alton's hands. It is all very well for the crew, for to start with, they have no imagination and to most of them their mental horizon stops at the walls of the boat. Secondly, they have the consolation of mechanical activities. They make and break switches and open and close valves. They work with their hands. An officer has imagination, and only works with his head. As we attacked the steamer, all one heard was murmurs from Alton, such as, Raise, Lower, Take her down to ten meters, Half speed, slow, bring her up to five meters, raise, lower. I endeavored to simulate an air of unconcern which I was far from feeling. Not that I was a prey to physical fear, I flatter myself that it is so far unknown to me, and there was no great danger, but simply that I longed to know what was happening. At length I heard the welcome order, Starboard tube, stand by which was followed almost immediately by the order, FIRE. There was a kind of coughing grunt, and the starboard torpedo proceeded on its errand of destruction. 
Every ear was strained for the sound of the explosion, but all we were vouchsafed was a torrent of blasphemy from Alton. The torpedo had jumped clean out of the water a hundred yards short of the steamer, and had then evidently dived under the ship. So I gathered later when Alton had calmed down somewhat. We were about to surface and give her the gun, when luckily Alton took a good sweep round with a skyscraper, and discovered one of those wretched little airships about a mile away, coming towards the steamer, which was wailing piteously on her siren. As the chart showed forty meters, we decided to bottom and have lunch. Over lunch we discussed the misadventure. Alton was loud in his curses of Tanzerman, the torpedo lieutenant at Bruges, from whom he had got the torpedo in guaranteed good condition only forty-eight hours before we sailed. He launched forth into a tirade against the torpedo staff at Bruges, and, warming to his subject, he roundly abused the whole of the depot personnel, whom he stigmatized as a set of hard-drinking, shore-loafing ruffians, who were incapable of realizing that they existed for the benefit of the boat's personnel and material. I naturally disagreed, and did so the more readily that I conscientiously disagree with him. I find that there is a tendency on the part of some of these submarine officers, who have been U-boating a long time, to get into narrow grooves. Most reserve officers are not like this, as they have only been in during the war. Alton is an exception. He left the Hamburg America on two years' half-pay in 1912, and was, of course, kept on in 1914. After all, the depot staff are Germans, and as such labor for the fatherland, and though their work in office and workship is not so dangerous as ours, on the other hand they have not got the stimulation before their eyes of glory to be gained. Personally, I am of the opinion that the torpedo broke surface because, Having fired from the outside tubes, it probably started too shallow, dived deep, recovered shallow and dived deep, broke surface and dived very deep. A sticky motor or sluggish weight would give this effect. And are these external tubes watertight? Theoretically, yes, but what of practice? We have been down to forty meters several times during this trip and not once have we had a chance on the surface of getting at the two external tubes, add to which our depth gear, with the pivots of the weight exposed to water if the tube does flood, and then you have rust, corrosion, and heaven knows what complications. I saw a British Mark 11-50 torpedo at the torpedo shop at Bruges the other day, and I was much struck with their deep depth gear, which is of the unrestrained Uhlan type, i.e., weight and valve interdependent. But then the main feature is that the whole gear is contained in a separate watertight chamber. Our system is certainly a great saving in space, and is much neater in design, whilst I prefer the Uhlan principle of valve conjuncting with weight, but it would be interesting to know whether the British have much trouble with the depth-keeping of their torpedo. I have written quite a disquisition on depth-gears. I must get on with my record of events. After lunch we had a good look around, but the small airship was still hanging about, flying slowly in large circles. We were rather surprised to meet one of these despicable little sausages, or zeppelin spawn as the navigator calls them, so far from land, and at dark we surfaced and proceeded on one engine on an easterly course, 
charging the battery right up with the other engine. Dawn revealed a blank horizon, not a vestige of mast, funnel, or smoke in sight. We ambled along in fine though cold weather, and I took advantage of the peacefulness of everything to do a really good series of Muller on the upper deck, stripped to the waist, and allowed the keen air to play its invigorating currents on my torso. Alton silently watched me from the conning tower, with a sneering expression on his face. The navigator, who is quite a decent youngster, though of no family, was, I could plainly see, struck by my development, and asked to be initiated into the series of exercises. I agreed willingly enough to show them to him. I will confess I wish Zoe could have seen me as I perspired with healthy exercise. At about eleven a.m., a couple of masts, then two more, then another, appeared above the horizon. The visibility was extreme, so we at once dived and proceeded at full speed, ten meters. We had been going thus for perhaps half an hour when Alton remarked that he would have another look at the convoy. We eased speed, came up to six meters, and Alton proceeded up into the conning tower to use a periscope. He had hardly applied his eye to the lens when he sharply ordered the boat to ten meters, accompanying this order with another to the motor-room demanding utmost speed. Kraft. I went up to the conning tower and found him white with excitement. "'Look!' he exclaimed, pointing to the periscope, entirely forgetful of the fact that we were at ten meters. I looked, and of course saw nothing. Furious at the trick I considered he had played on me, I turned on him, to be disarmed by his apology. "'Sorry, I forgot. The whole British battle-cruiser force is there.' It was now my turn to be excited, and I rushed down to the motor-room, determined to give her every amp she would take. The port-foremost motor was sparking like the devil, rings of cursed sparks shooting round the commutator, but this was no time for ceremony. I relentlessly ordered the field current to be still further reduced. We were actually running with an F.C. of 3.75 amps. Footnote. The lower the field current, the faster the motor goes. 3.75 is almost incredibly low for a motor of this type at least according to British practice. Signed, Etienne. End of footnote. For a period when the sparking assumed the appearance of a ring of fire, and, fearing a commutator strip would melt, I ordered an F.C. of five amps. We thus passed a quarter of an hour full of strain, the tension of which was reflected in the attitude of all the men. Alton had announced his intention of using the stern torpedo tube after his failure in the morning and the crew of this tube were crouched at their stations like a gun's crew in the last few seconds preparatory to opening fire. The switchboard attendants gripped the regulating rheostats as if by their personal efforts they could urge the boat on faster. Old Schmidt, at the helm, never lifted his eyes from the compass repeater. At length, slow both, bring her to six meters, came from the conning tower, to which place I proceeded to hear the news. Slowly the periscope was raised, and I held my breath. A groan came from Alton, and he turned away. For a fraction of a second I was almost pleased at his obvious pain. Then, sick with disappointment, I took his place. Yes, it was all over. There they were, and with hungry eyes and depressed heart I saw five great battle-cruisers, 
of which I recognized the tiger with her three great funnels, the Princess Royal, Lion, and two others, zigzagging along at twenty-five knots, at a distance of twelve thousand metres, across our bow. They were surrounded by a numerous screen of destroyers and light cruisers, the former at that range through the periscope appearing as black smudges. It is not often one is permitted such a spectacle in modern war, and I could not tear myself away from the sight of those great brutes whom I had fought when in the Durflinger at Dogger Bank, and again when in the Koenig at Jutland. So near, and yet so far, and as they rapidly drew away so did all the visions of an iron cross. As soon as they were out of sight, we surfaced in order to report what we had seen to Zeebrugge and Heligoland. Everything seemed against us. I had gone on the bridge with the navigator. Alton, with a face as black as hell, had gone to the wardroom. About ten minutes elapsed when I heard a fearful altercation going on below. I stepped down to find the young wireless operator trembling in front of Alton, who was overwhelming him with a flood of abuse. As I reached the wardroom, Alton shook his fist in the man's face and bellowed, "'Make the damn thing work, I tell you!' "'Impossible, Captain. The main condenser—' the man began. Purple with rage, Alton seized a heavy pair of parallel rulers, and before I could check him, hurled them full in the operator's face. Bleeding copiously, the youth fell to the deck in a stunned condition. It was then, for the first time, that I noticed a half-empty bottle of spirits on the table, which colossal quantity he must have consumed in about a quarter of an hour. Turning to me, this semi-madman pointed to the wireless operator with his foot and growled, "'Have him removed!' This I did, and then, lowering the periscope, I ordered the boat to fifteen metres. We proceeded at this depth until eight p.m., when I was informed that the captain was in his bunk and wished to see me. I discovered him with his face to the ship's side, and upon my reporting myself he ordered me, firstly to throw that blasted bottle overboard, an unnecessary proceeding as it was empty, and secondly to surface and shape course for Zeebrugge. At midnight he relieved me, apparently perfectly normal. The wireless operator has been laid up all day, and has a nasty cut on the head. The navigator, a great scandal-monger, has heard from the engineer that Alton was speaking to him alone this morning, and the engineer believes that Alton has given him five hundred marks to say he fell down a hatch. Hooray! Blankenberg buoy has just been reported in sight. Soon I shall see my Zoe. New Entry with what high hopes did I write the last few lines a few hours ago, and how they were dashed to the ground, for on going into the mess at Bruges I found amongst my letters a note from her, which was terrible in its brevity. She simply said, Dear Carl, I am going away for some days, and as I shall be travelling it is no good giving you an address. To our next meeting. Zoe. How horribly vague! not an indication of her destination, her object, or the probable length of her absence. Of course I rushed round to the flat, but found the place shut up. The porter told me she had gone away with her maid. He couldn't say when she'd be back, if at all. I gave him ten marks, and he said she might be away a fortnight. If I'd given him twenty, he'd have said a week. He obviously didn't know. I feel I could do anything to-night, any mad, 
evil thing would appeal to me. There is a most fearful uproar coming from the guest-room, where a large and rowdy party are entertaining the chorus of a travelling review company. I saw them when they arrived, horribly common-looking women, with legs like mine-tubes. New Entry Another day, and still no news. I don't know how I shall stick it. She might have had the softness of heart to write to me. She knows my address. This evening a letter from the little mother, who asks whether I can find time to go to Frankfurt when I have leave. At the end of the letter she mentions that Rosa has joined the Women's Voluntary Auxiliary Corps of Army Nurses. I suppose she thought she'd like her photograph taken in some fancy uniform as Rosa Freinland, one of our Frankfurt beauties, now on war work. Holding the patient's hand is about the only work she intends doing. Women as a class are the same the world over. We are well supplied with English papers in the mess here. They come regularly from Amsterdam, and in their pages I see, just as in ours, pictures of the Countess this and the Lord that, photographed in becoming attitudes doing war work. It seems agricultural pursuits are the fashion in England at present. Wait till our U-boat war gets its knife well into their fat guts. It will be more than fashionable to work in the fields then. The British Empire is undeniably a great creation, or rather not so much a creation as a thing arrived at accidentally, but it lacks solidarity. It sprawls, a confused mass of races and creeds, around the world. Its very immensity lays it open to attack. It has a dozen Achilles' heels from Ireland to Egypt and South Africa to India. I met a man only yesterday who was recently at the propaganda department of the Foreign Office, and without going into details he gave me a very good idea of the good work that is going on in Britain's canker spots. Ireland is considered particularly promising to those in the know. Now for an agitated night. To think that a girl should disturb me so. End of section.